You're listening to Breadbeat, a podcast dedicated to spreading short stories and poems by the UChicago community, brought to you by Slice Bread Magazine and The Vein. I'm your host, Hadar Lazar. And today, guys, I'm very happy to present to you Jenso Duque, who here not only reads his story, but also talks a little bit about it. His story is turn of the century. (laughs) (laughs) Should we do that? At 5.27 a.m., Jorge Escobedo sits at his kitchen table sporting half a frothy beard of shaving cream and red-striped boxers. On the other side of the door, I can see he dines with the usual companions. Spread out in front of him is a squadron of stained mugs, varying in size and color. Coffee, the kind you microwave from a tin. A wisp from his ashtray tickles my nostrils. The damn ashtray, the one his dearly departed mother molded during her binges at the Y. He takes a slow drag from the last of his luckies and then suspends a blue-veined hand over the mouths of the mugs. Each contains a meticulously calculated ratio of milk to sugar. Many a morning I have arrived to find Jorge's pristine nails pinching moats into the blackness of his insomnia. Today he caresses a white mug. It says number one dad on it, or some such. You have to feel out the difference a grain makes, he explains each time he catches my wandering eye. Do you hear that? It is silence. The neighboring windows do not blink. That is because Jorge lives alone in his one-bedroom apartment above the small but relatively pleasant hair salon he runs on Clark Street. The business has done well thanks to the reputation. The Queen of Boys Town, they call him. It helps that he dresses in Barbara's regalia, prancing his lanky limbs across the checkered floor, as though ready to send for the guards at a moment's notice. You would think he was the conductor of an orchestra, always graceful with a pair of scissors in hand. Despite his gay disposition, he takes haircutting rather seriously, so I manage to stomach his personality once every six weeks. Moreover, in my presence, he knows to curb his enthusiasm. I knock twice. Let me in, Jorge. It's cold and my joints ache. I'm early this time because it is fun to keep him on his toes. He has never denied me, least of all on my birthday. Startled, Jorge stands up abruptly, the scraping of a chair audible on the other side of the door. A mug shatters somewhere as he hurries to greet me. Poor boy. He curses, exhausted and trying to maintain his composure. Just a minute, sir. You wouldn't leave an old man out in the wind, would you? Of course not, Mr. Arjona. He unbolts the door, guiding my cane into his hallway. He offers to carry my coat, but I insist on hanging it myself. His morning smoke and a coffee experiments have stuck to his skin, and the smell will convince my niece that I have taken to Tabaji again. Jorge begins to say something, but my coughs cut him off. The ashes of his breakfast agitate my throat, and immediately he hobbles to the kitchen, ignoring his swollen foot. Forgive me, Mr. Arjona. I tried to catch the mug before it fell, and then you knocked, and then I forgot to put out the cigarette. For God's sake, I gasp. Just get rid of it. I can hear him through my shut eyelids. Bent over in a fit, I wheeze against the radiator, indifferent to its warmth. Somewhere in the kitchen, Jorge opens and closes drawers, each emitting a different hollow note. He intends to bury the ashtray, probably among dirty porcelain, empty takeout boxes, and more mugs. I recover, only to need dust on my fingertips. The apartment is filthy. His mother, may she rest in peace, would not approve.
Jorge and his mother Angela pled asylum in the early 80s during the rise of the Cali cartel. His father, Luis Escobedo, was a childhood friend of the Orajuela brothers. On Sundays, the Orajuelas joined the Escobedos for lunch, discussing that morning's service and the latest upper-class gossip. Too young for those conversations, the boys played army and ate cheesy arepas with panela water to guzzle down their entitled lips. Those treats were Abuela Escobedo's specialty, passed down from generation to generation. The brother's specialty was kidnapping, something that the scars on Luis's knuckles explained better than any of their late-night stories. As for how Angela was eventually brought into their world, I cannot really say. Women are for loving, not for understanding. That was Luis's motto. The cruel irony, of course, was that his son did not love women, but he surely understood them. If Luis were to have seen Jorge's drag rendition of Cher, he probably would have disowned the boy. That, or looped him in with the other discardables cleansed by the cartel in pursuit of their beautiful, better Cali. Today, Jorge has embraced his blue blood roots, but still dabbles with the cocaine playground he grew up in. Jorge, you have stopped cutting. I'm in his bedroom, seated on the Barcelona chair reserved for private appointments. The first time he sat me here, a shiver ran through my knees. I could feel the warmth of some of his more intimate sessions, a mosaic I wished to block out as the sticky leather pressed against my back. That first morning, I shifted my weight constantly. He has since acquired a separate chair for me, at my request. I am sorry, Mr. Arjona. My head is in the clouds. Please, continue. The rhythm of his scissor snips fills the silence. A ray of sunlight slowly crawls up my thigh as the city starts to stretch its legs. I keep my eyes closed, above all else so as not to startle him during his work. Flakes of my hair drizzle down to his hardwood floor as he shapes my head. After a few minutes, his tender hands lather my face with shaving cream. He takes extra care with the worn flesh that dangles from my cheeks. You are quiet this morning, sir. It's not every day that a man finds himself in my shoes. One hundred years is quite a feat. This straight blade rasps in my ear. Jorge's firm wrist applies the appropriate amount of pressure against my skin. He's an artist with a razor, a genius with a grind. He memorizes the geography of every face. Not even the cocaine flowing through his blood can break his concentration. He quickly arrives to my jugular, where he slides the cutting edge along the length of my throat. I swallow bitterly to tempt him. And of what have you been thinking, he asks, trying to make friendly conversation. Mostly of Gaitan and El Bogotazo. Jorge guides the blade along the other side of my neck and stops short. In the kitchen, a naked bulb purrs. And what of Gaitan? Oh, you know, this and that. Liberals and conservatives, communists and oligarchs, the bread and butter of my youth. He scratches my bristles once more. Father told me you participated in the riots. My ribs strain as I inhale. I still remember where I was when I first heard the crackle of the radio announcement. We were at a cafe enjoying lunch when Gaitan was murdered. For five minutes, Columbia stood still. Did the people really take arms? Imagine men in three-piece suits and bowler hats with machetes pointed toward a blood-orange sky. The city was a war zone. I couldn't walk to work without slipping on empty cartridges. For months, that was my life. Bogotá's scorched streets still haunt me in my dreams, even after the loss of my vision. My neck burns as he quickly grazes the remainder of my stubble. The aftershave he applies brings tears to my eyes, milky white like my pupils. I have grown accustomed to our routine, but still I cannot help the shortage of breath, the punch to the gut that is a clean-shaven face. He offers me a shoulder, but I prefer the loyal intuition of my cane. I have committed the layout of the apartment to memory. I often wonder what he could have done if he were allowed to live, I whisper on my way to the kitchen. 
Jorge stays behind to sweep his bedroom floor. Father said he was a symbol, nothing more. Your father was a bastard who knew nothing about politics. Drug trafficking, maybe, but not politics. The floorboards creak under his weight as he moves about. I pray he can differentiate my hair from his sugar from his grams. The coffee battalion rests patiently on the table, and I turn off the light, comfortable in the darkness. The only sound in the apartment is his aggressive broom. I fondle a package of powder on the countertop and taste a bit with my tongue. This one is the sugar. He must have stashed away his eight ball. Do you hear that? It is silence. The neighboring windows do not blink, but shut their eyelids. That is because Jorge and I sit awkwardly in his one-bedroom apartment above the small but relatively pleasant hair salon he runs on Clark Street. How does one articulate the passage of weeks and mere minutes? No amount of how are you's, have you been busy's, and coffee mugs can fill the void between us. Every movement the boy makes is deafening. The way he stirs the spoon in his mug, the gentle but impatient vibrations of his toes on the floor, there is a language that only tissue speaks. I finish the last of my coffee and clear my throat. Jorge understands. How much do I owe you? There is no need to pay, sir, let alone on this special occasion. Charity will not be necessary. How much? He bites his lower lip. I glare. Five is fine. Consider it a gift. Family discount and all that. I shake my freshly trimmed head in disagreement. The last time I saw Jorge's face, he was a child, and over the course of the last ten years, any image of him in my mind has faded away. As I walk toward the exit, his body heat suddenly blocks my path. We embrace, and for the first time, I can feel how feeble his frame is, how little he eats. His shirt clings desperately to his sweaty chest, all ribs, and his bones jab at mine. I'm holding a skeleton of a man who at half my age is twice as worn. And though he cannot cry, the rattle of his nicotine lungs explains better than any of his late night stories. It doesn't matter anymore, I say into his hair. He is dead. We break apart and I move steadily toward the door, stopping to grab my coat and scarf. The scent of Jorge has stuck to my clothes. I shouldn't have hugged him, and now it will be hours before his aroma disappears. I slip five dollars into his pocket and turn to grip the doorknob. Happy birthday, grandfather. Thank you, George. Um, so you had asked, uh, you know, who died, who, who, died? who, who died at the end, you know, when, uh, the grandfather is hugging George and he says, you know, it doesn't matter anymore. He's dead. Um, and it's ambiguous. It's deliberately ambiguous. Um, uh, it is technically when I was writing it, like I said, it was supposed to refer to the, the father figure, this, uh, Luis Escobedo who was involved with the cartel. Um, but eventually I liked that it took on the significance of this bigger political figure as well and and who this figure kind of stood for. Um, oh, there was another thing too. I mean, this uh, this weird sense of like, um, I don't know, fatalism and, and, and cyclical nature of Colombian history and politics that you get in a lot of like Garcia Marquez and stuff that, you know, it, it we're going in circles. Nothing's really been achieved since modern uh, Colombian history, essentially. And, and this is also part of the reason why I chose that event, specifically um, Gaitan's assassination is thought to be the beginning of like contemporary Colombian history. What about George as like an individual? What did you want to show about him? Um, well, I, I 
you know, I wanted there to be this, this there is an age gap, right? A, a, even a generational gap between who this grandfather is versus who George is and um, how both are narrative, narrative, both are relevant to the narrative of what is Colombian history, what is Colombian identity. Um, so as an individual, I don't know, I wanted, I mean, to me, to some extent, uh, I, I didn't really articulate this in the story, but it's supposed to technically take place in Chicago. Yeah, it's supposed Clark to be Street. about Clark Street, right? Yeah, it's supposed to, I, I knew a barber who had a, a salon on Clark Street or whatever, he was a Colombian guy, his name was George. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so like, I mean, for me, that's, it's part of, as most of my writing tends to be, I'm trying to process all this this idea of identity, right? Of, of what it means to be Colombian, um, whether you're in Colombia or you're in America, what, you know, how much do you get to own of those different experiences, those histories, how do they shape who you become? Um, so, I mean, hopefully, to some extent, I was able to articulate that Jorge as an individual is, his narrative is legitimately a Colombian narrative, you know, the way that uh, this grandfather's narrative is that he was there for the assassination, that, oh, it's a different kind of narrative, but it's still very much in dialogue with the whole conversation. What is Colombianness? <laughs> what is Colombianness in America versus Latin America? You know, all that kind of stuff. So, yeah. That was awesome. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you for having me, obviously. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, of course. You can find Turn of the Century in the 2014 Fall Edition of Sliced Bread. <laughs>